Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Why am I making you work the 4th of July weekend, Gavin? I don't know. Maybe win the war next time. Ass. The following podcast contains... Profanity, food jokes, and tired comedy references. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you went from friends in low places to an imaginary rock star from Australia, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 320. Call me Chris Gaines, edition of the show, where we talk about that time Garth Brooks pretended not to be Garth Brooks for a little while. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Diamond Dave Project, the fictional life and times of heavy metal god Diamond Dave Bledsoe. From his origin shredding on stage in a mountain home high school in 1987 to the peak of his popularity touring with Striper, Diamond Dave personified what it meant to be metal. Join us as we take a look back on the imaginary life and career of an unlikely heavy metal god in a documentary movie, The Goat, 30 Years in the Faking. Watch Diamond Dave's spectacular rise from obscurity, his life of drugs and sex, and his eventual fall from grace. The Diamond Dave Project. Fake fame has a price, and he paid in full. He was a rocker who liked fast cars and even faster women. Sex. That's the greatest thing about being a musician. His passion for music was rivaled by only one thing. I've gone to his hotel room on occasion, and uh, there have been more women there than I would count on one hand. But his addiction to sex finally forced Chris Gaines to seek help. Fortunately, he did get help, because if he didn't, he was headed down a path that was just destructive. Chris Gaines' solo career took him to the top of the charts. Then his manager took him to the cleaners. I turned Chris Gaines from a nobody into a superstar. They say you can take the boy out of the country, but you can never take the country out of the boy. Who says that? No one says that. I don't know. I heard it somewhere. When I moved from rural southeastern Tennessee as a kid, I was very country. Sick, thick southern accent, baseball cap wearing, skull dipping full on 11-year-old redneck. And after a brief but vicious round of being bullied for sounding like I just wandered off the set of Hee Haw, I spent most of the next few years assiduously scrubbing the country from my outer personality and becoming as blandly generic as possible. So by the time I attended high school, I had largely eliminated my southern accent and adopted the style and mannerisms of Anywhere USA, and the bullying stopped. I mean, I was bullied for other things, but just not about my accent. That went on until I discovered weed. But I never really drifted too far from my southern roots, and when I was older and in the military, I was able to more openly embrace them. Not through the usual manner of having three or four kids out with three or four different women and living at a trailer park, though I, I did live in a trailer for a little while. Piece of shit trailer trash! Yeah, pretty much. It was mostly expressed through a love of country music. I got 
big into country music for a few years in the early 90s. While the rest of America was experiencing the grunge movement, I was largely wearing snakeskin boots and comically large hats. It's probably because I was overseas for the first time in my life. If you don't count Guam, which I guess I probably should. Because that counts. Being away from home and in Korea, all things American, suddenly became very important to a young me. There are few things more American than country music. Capitalism and racism, sure. Which uh, actually, a lot of the time, writes songs celebrating capitalism and racism, so... I don't know. So I found myself boot scooting along to artists like Randy Travis, Clint Black, and of course, the undisputed king of country music. Cletus Delroy, Montfort, Biggersworth, Buckley. No, 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 Troy Albrooks. Never heard of him. Oh, you've heard of him, just not by his first name, Troy Al. No, you probably know him by his middle name, Garth. Party on, Garth. I guess. No, Garth Brooks, you know Garth, one of the world's best-selling music artists, having sold more than 170 million records and as of 2020, according to the RIAA, best-selling solo album artist in the United States, with 156 million domestic units sold, ahead of Elvis Presley and second only to the Beatle in total album sales overall. Oh yeah, that guy. I know it doesn't seem like it now, but Zoomers, jump out and ask your parents about Garth in the 90s. He was fucking everywhere. Sure, he was a country artist, but at the same time, he was kind of rock and roll for a guy in a big goofy hat. His first eponymous album dropped in 1989 and hit number two on the Billboard country chart and number 13 on the Billboard 200, which for a country artist was uh, impressive. But it was Garth's second album that put him on the map, as it were. No Fences spent 23 weeks at number one on the country album charts and peaked at number three on the Billboard 200 and spawned a song that to this day remains ubiquitous in bars around the world. At this very second, if you walk into almost any bar in the world with white people in it and slap money in the jukebox for this song, white people would lose their goddamn minds. Blaming all of my roots, I showed up in boots and ruined your blind tie affair. It topped the country charts for months and rapidly seeped into the collective consciousness of drinkers around the globe. Over the decade, Garth went on to record hit after hit, do massive tours, and generally become the face of country to America and the rest of the world. And through all of this, he maintained a rowdy good old boy image, hopeless without being cloying, popular, but still considered a regular guy by the fans and the media alike, and widely considered to be just a person. Just like us! And enjoyed a life without scandal or bad breasts. To be sure, he was known for his ego, but all things considered, Garth Brooks in the 1990s had it all, and seemed to be poised to make the jump into a new millennium at the top of his game. That was until... Garth did something different. It was 1999, and Garth Brooks was pondering a jump into making movies. It makes sense. He was popular, reasonably good-looking, charismatic as hell. Doing movies kind of made sense. At the same time, 
Garth was, uh... Going through some shit. Yeah. His wife of 13 years and he had been quietly having problems for a while, and in the spring of 99, they announced they'd be separating. Musically, Brooks was feeling constrained. Country music was his love, but over the years, he'd been experimenting with hard rock and pop. And on top of this, and I had forgotten this little nugget for a hot minute, in February of 1999, Garth Brooks went to spring training with the San Diego Padres baseball team. He did what? From a 1999 article in WRAL.com, quote, There's no chance of him being on on the Major League Club, but we're excited to have him because I think he's going to bring a lot of enthusiasm and hard work into the camp because that's how he goes about his business, Padres manager Bruce Bochy said. Brooks, a switch hitter, worked out with the Padres for two days in last year's spring training. The extent of his game action was a pinch running appearance when he was nearly picked off twice. After three years on the road playing sold-out concerts, Brooks took a year off, giving him a chance to live out his fantasy of playing professional baseball. If he's any good... He could be back on a bus, riding the back roads of America, playing minor league ball. The man who sings about friends in low places could end up in in the low minors, maybe at Idaho Falls, Idaho, Rancho Cucamonga, California, or Mobile, Alabama. But he's serious enough about the game to skip the February 24th Grammy Awards ceremonies in Los Angeles, even though he's nominated for three awards to go to spring training in Peoria, Arizona, a few days before the February 23rd reporting day, unquote. Needless to say, Garth didn't play baseball, but it gives you a pretty good idea of his frame of mind leading into the remarkable year that gave us none other than the Australian rock star heartthrob, Chris Gaines. Who was Chris Gaines? The website Wide Open Country summarizes the life story of Chris Gaines pretty well when they said, quote, Chris Gaines and his rebellious friend Tommy started a rock band in 1985 Los Angeles during their high school years. The band, called Crush, played local clubs until eventually getting their big break after gaining some fame. Tommy dies in a plane crash, completely shattering Gaines. Gaines, who never had the approval of his father, set out to make a solo record which sold 12 million copies. That's probably the first absurdity in this whole story. That's in the article. That's not me riffing. His Father eventually dies of cancer and gains his unrequited love for his dad, eventually spirals into a serious sex addiction. Seriously. Again, from the article, not me being an asshole. Gaines then discovered he was getting screwed by his manager in a horrible contract and settles to get out of it. While furiously attempting to record another album, Gaines leaves the studio in the early hours of the morning and suffers a horrific car crash. He has to undergo reconstructive face surgery. And this is where Garth Brooks comes in as the actor portraying Gaines. It's a joke, right? It's better be a joke. I assure you, pod friends, that Garth was very serious about Chris Gaines. His production company was working with Paramount Pictures to release a movie called The Lamb, a biopic on the life of Chris Gaines starring Garth. In September of 99, Brooks's label released Garth Brooks in The Life of Chris Gaines. The idea was to pique interest in the movie and kind of act as a pre-soundtrack. Packaged as a greatest hits album, Garth recorded 13 songs and characters Gaines all in a pop music style of the late 90s. Initially, Garth wanted to release the album without his name on it, but the label kiboshed that idea real damn quick using the simple logic that no one would buy it. But with Garth's name on it, Everyone would, and they did. It peaked at number two on the Billboard Albums charts, and the single Lost in You hit number five on the Billboard Hot 100, Brooks's only appearance on the Hot 100. But the reviews for it were uh, 
let's say middling. The Daily Vault gave it a B minus saying, quote, Chris Gaines' greatest hits is not the disaster some people were predicting, nor is it the masterpiece that some would like to be- us to believe it is. What this album is, is in the end, a slightly hesitant first step into a new musical world for Brooks that succeeds more often than it fails, but when it stumbles, it falls hard, unquote. Rolling Stone gave it two and a half stars, saying, quote, has Garth Brooks been keeping something stashed under his cowboy hat all these years, waiting for the right moments to let his Yankee freak flag fly? Garth Brooks, in the life of Chris Gaines, suggests that the massively popular country icon is confronting some serious identity issues, unquote. And Entertainment Weekly gave a scathing C-, saying, quote, Instead, Chris Gaines is a faded musical wallpaper. Muley, baby, faux baby-faced unplugged weepers lost in you the way I remember you, and timid rinky-dinks attempt at blues rock, white flag, and snow in July, and ballads like it don't matter in the sun are standard Brooks Fair, albeit without fiddles and steel guitars. Even the bombastic right now, which cobbles together what's wrong with the world sentiments of Cheryl Wheeler's If It Were Up To Me with the 60s anthem get together, is hardly a radical departure for Brooks, whose records have often been as glossy as middle-of-the-road pop, unquote. I'm not a music aficionado. For fuck's sake, I like We Built This City. So to me, the life of Chris Gaines is fine. It's generic late 90s pop rock, the kind of thing that made the Goo Goo Dolls so fucking popular. Oh, that was way too harsh. No need to be mean. It wasn't the middling music that was the problem for most people. It was that, uh, well, frankly, it was uh, Chris Gaines himself that got people giggling. Brooks went on a crash diet, donned a pair of leather pants and a black wig that honestly looked as though someone stole their hair off of an emo girl and wore a tiny little soul patch. And for those of you who did not live through the late 90s, the soul patch is a tiny, tiny beard that is only in the center of the chin, directly below the lips. That sounds awful. It was... It looked like you tried to shave shit-faced and missed a spot. And in 1999, it was extremely popular. But why? I can only imagine it's because we honestly thought the world was going to end on New Year's Eve. And as a sort of teaser for the planned movie, VH1 actually released an honest-to-God behind-the-music for Chris Gaines. The uh, Daily Beast describes the show thusly, quote, Taken alone, the mockumentary is a pitch-perfect rift on rockest self-seriousness, a haphazard montage of soap opera interviews, exaggerated hints at Gaines' daddy issues, and regular asides about how much he loves sex. Sex, Gaines muses in an early scene, is the best part of being a musician. The movie undercuts Gaines' inept critiques of corporate music culture with absurdist touches like his run of increasingly unhinged album covers, unquote. But what struck the watchers and the studio execs about the behind the music was one incontrovertible problem. Garth Brooks, not an actor. For as many talents, Brooks as Chris Gaines came across as, uh, well, he came across like a high school sophomore giving a big dramatic monologue to read and delivering it with the emotion of a book report on the death of a salesman. Tommy was the kind of person I always wanted to be. He was success in anything he tried. I remember it. A week after his death, Tommy Levitt's mother brought Chris a ring that Tommy had been wearing when he died. She said she wanted me to have it. This ring was the greatest gift to me at that point. 
the kindest words used about the performance by Hollywood types was uh, wooden. To which, no, Pinocchio was wooden. Garth was an animatronic doll reading lines. He displayed all the believability and emotion of a 15-year-old me caught climbing in a window after midnight trying to explain to my parents that I had been home for hours but just remembered that I'd left my deaf leopard tape at Todd's house. The absurdity of the moment was captured on SNL back when it used to be funny when Garth Brooks hosted the show and Chris Gaines appeared as the musical guest and a young Tracy Jordan roasted the moment in a decidedly non-woke sketch, even for 1999. Chris Gaines ain't lived, man. His insides are pink. Here's your soda. Thanks. Garth, they need you on stage. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, God. Chris, I hate to tell you this. I know, I know. Garth is Chris Gaines. You really think I'm stupid, don't you? I mean, did you hear the album? No. That's what I'm saying. It's crazy, man. I just can't believe he did that album. These are strange times, Holmes. For all Brooks claimed the endeavor was not a joke, (laughs) harder and harder people laughed. Again, from the Daily Beast, quote, It was the seriousness that irked reviewers. Critics that didn't call Brooks crazy harped on his apparent arrogance or self-indulgence. In a matter of weeks, Heather McLaughlin wrote in American Music, the Chris Games album became a virtual synonym for hubris. But 20 years out, the project seems anything but pretentious. It's a snapshot that lays bare the painstaking lengths celebrities go through to craft their public personas and the messy, sublimely, idiotic insides of industry marketing. In some ways, it's a fitting project for our millennium, a systemic critique born entirely in the system, packed with faux nostalgia, so absurd it verges on farce, but one no one quite gets, unquote. The whole thing rapidly began to come apart for all Garth's earnest attempts to promote the concept. More and more people saw it as one giant joke. Album sales cratered and Chris Gaines' albums only sold 2 million copies, which for anyone but Garth Brooks would be fucking fantastic. But for Brooks, whose prior album, Sevens, a critically panned album, and more importantly, a low-selling Brooks album, only sold 10 million copies in the U.S. and a million more overseas. It was becoming clear that Chris Gaines was not what Brooks wanted. I remember watching this thing unfold with kind of an arched eyebrow. I mean, I was well past my big hat and boots phase, and I enjoyed Garth's music still. And let me tell you, pod friends, I could rock the shit out of a karaoke version of Friends in Low Places and Brooks's ballad, The Dance. Mm. You want to watch a drunk 50-ish woman come unglued? Be a 29-year-old dude at a shitty karaoke bar crooning like Garth to her near last call and brother, you were going home to some milf action later on that night. Did not need to know that. (laughs) No one did. I just felt like I'd tell you. The whole thing seemed pretty silly to me, but then again... I'd watch famous people do much sillier stuff in the 90s. I mean, hey, compared to cigar banging an intern in the Oval Office and getting your dumbass impeached over it, pretending to be a washed-up Australian rock star seemed to be a much better way to experience a midlife crisis. Also, this kind of thing, not unheard of in music. Hank Williams Sr. had Luke the Drifter. Bowie had Ziggy Sardust. The Beatles had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Prince recorded an album as a woman named Camille. I'm sorry, what now? Oh, yeah. That's a real thing. I'm not making that up. I read about it on Britannica.com. Quote, 
Prince composed an album under the alter ego of a woman named Camille, which was allegedly inspired by 19th century hermaphrodite Herculean Barbine. And although the 1986 album in the whole was never released, the tracks featuring Prince's voice sped up on tape were brought to the public through various other albums and could be found by diligent searchers, unquote. So, hey, if Prince can be a hermaphrodite named Camille, why the fuck can't Garth Brooks be Chris Gaines? Alas, the rest of the world did not see it that way. The movie The Lamb was quickly killed as a project and Garth stopped doing appearances as Gaines. The public thought Garth was off his nut. The label worried about future album sales and Brooks was embarrassed by the reception so Chris Gaines simply disappeared. And it has been damn near impossible to get Brooks to talk about it since then. He told Yahoo Entertainment in 2019 on the 20th anniversary of the attempt, quote, A lot of people misunderstood it and my ribs are still sore from getting the shit kicked out of me for it. It really was a tough time for me because of the fact that I saw for the first time that people can be focused on something way past the music. And that's never a good thing when music takes a back seat. What I enjoyed about it is, is you survive it. And the fans are very sweet. And then all of a sudden you realize that the people who got it, got it. And the people who never got it, never picked it up. So that makes me feel good because I got to tell you, I'm surprised you brought this up. But everybody that ever does mention to me says it's their favorite Garth Brooks album. I don't know how to take that. But it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of work, unquote. Not long after the Gaines episode, Brooks retired from recording and performing in 2001. His last album did well enough, but didn't match up to his pre-Gaines levels. And the Chris Gaines album disappeared from stores. And online, obviously, wasn't a thing yet. Quick call back to the Napster episode. Streaming scared the shit out of Garth Brooks. So... If for years, you you still can't get his music on Spotify or Pandora, although recently he has signed a deal for just a few songs to appear on Amazon streaming music. It wasn't so much that Brooks was trying to hide Chris Gaines as just giving up on Chris Gaines. You couldn't get him to talk about it in interviews. He would smile and wave it off. And soon enough, with his divorce, retirement, and subsequent marriage to singer, country singer Trisha Yearwood, long rumored to be romantically involved with Garth, but both swear they did not get together until after his divorce. And Chris Gaines slowly sank into the background consciousness of America, occasionally surfing as a retro joke on shows like The Family Guy. Chris Gaines was Garth Brooks. I just figured that out. And, of course, fodder for low-rated podcast until... The website Taste of Country told us that, quote, in late 2020, Brooks hinted that something new from within the fictional Gaines universe was in the works. And during his Monday night, March 15th, Inside Studio G Facebook livestream, the country superstar offered a bit more information. I can't tell you anything except... You're going to have it in every format you can possibly imagine. It's coming, even on vinyl, Brooks says in response to a fan who asked if Garth Brooks in the life of Chris Gaines would ever be made available on a format besides CD, making the hard-to-find project more widely available. Isn't all Brooks is planning, though. You're going to have Chris Gaines stuff nobody heard before either, he reveals. It's all coming. I love that project. I'm so excited, unquote. Brooks confirmed that the Gaines material was being released on CD and presumably on Amazon Music, the only streaming affiliate Brooks is currently working with, unquote. I joked about Chris Gaines being the darkest moment in American music, but honestly, it wasn't good enough or bad enough to be the darkest moment in American music history. 
It was just odd. We're talking about a famous musician. Odd isn't odd for them. The website Stereo Gum said of the Gaines episode back in 2019, quote, perhaps the real reason for Chris Gaines' failure is that Brooks went too far and not far enough. He developed all the details, ridiculous as they were, but they were from the, but from the very beginning, it was sold as a Garth Brooks project. Who in the 1990s could possibly shimmy out from under the heel of that enormous snakeskin boot? Would listeners have shrugged so hard if they didn't know it was Garth Brooks? If Chris Gaines was an unknown import from down under, would he have had a chance to live if there was some mystery to his identity? Would he have been a fascinating and larger-than-life character if he had been marketed virally, introduced via via Phantom website, or leaked songs? So it's even weirder to think that Chris Gaines might have actually been ahead of his time in another respect. In the 21st century, the borders separating country, rock, and pop are arguably more porous than than ever. Established pop artists sojourned to Nashville for twangy albums, and nobody bats an eye. In fact, Jewel, Sheryl Crow, Darius Rucker, Don Henley, and now Cyndi Lauper have all enjoyed late career bumps thanks to their embrace of country. Meanwhile, Taylor Swift has moved from mainstream country to mainstream pop with a fluidity and grace altogether missing from the Chris Gaines project. Perhaps Brooks blazed that trail for her and other young artists to follow, but again, that's hard to argue. Swift's trajectory from Nashville to New York lacks any change in persona. She's never anyone other than the self she presents to us. She needs no alter ego, unquote. Garth says he isn't interested in stepping back into the leather pants of Chris Gaines if for no other reason as he doesn't think he could lose the weight. I feel your pain, brother. But that doesn't rule out recording new music as Chris Gaines, and I for one think he should. Chris Gaines wasn't just an odd character Brooks created in the throes of a midlife crisis. He's a testament to all of us who ever thought, well, this shit is awful. What if I just became someone else and then did it? Every chubby guy who got hair plugs, a sports car, and a mistress can identify with Brooks as Gaines. Every emo teen who loathed their life in high school and dreamed of just becoming a different person is a soul patch away from Chris Gaines. Hell, even a 50-ish guy with a podcast who created a character that is somewhat uh, exaggerated for the sake of the story can't be a little Chris Gaines. And I bet there are a lot of other rich guys and hit country albums and millions of dollars that kind of identify with wanting to be someone like Chris Gaines. Travis Tritt, I'm looking at you. And you know what? On top of it all, Garth's wife, Trisha Yearwood, herself an accomplished country musician, says that the life of Chris Gaines is her favorite Garth Brooks album. And if country music has taught us cowboys anything, is that the love of a good woman will save us. Even if we wear a soul patch, drop a late 90s bland pop music album, and derail our careers. That is it for our show this week. Listener Amy reached out to me after I teased this show on social media and told me that she would roller skate up and down my ass if I maligned Chris Gaines in this show. And while I very much believe her, I want you all to know the editorial stance of the show is never to be intimidated. But since she donates via our Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast, we might have moderated some of the jokes we might have otherwise told. Because there's editorial ethics and there's cold, hard cash. Cash pays for booze, 
And ethics won't even get you a handy in a truck stop men's room anymore. That's what I heard anyway. Speaking of selling out, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods so that others can listen and wonder what we paid you to give us five stars. All of our truck stop men's rooms musings can be found on the social at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. Every embarrassing truck stop revelation we've ever recorded can be found at whatthehellpodcast.com. And we are a proud member of Seltzer King's Podcast Network who really wish we wouldn't talk about jerking off strangers in truck stops, men's rooms, unless we're doing it on stage at a live show. So for me, Dave, I am my own alter ego, Bledsoe. Producer, I like to think of myself as somewhat of a Sasha Fierce. Gavin and all the fictional Sergeant Peppers on this show, we want to say... It ain't going to stop the world if you walk out the door. This old world will just keep turning around like it did the day before. But if you come back in here with a soul patch, we are shaving that shit off. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.